Hello. Oh, yeah. It's me again. I shortchanged Caroline Daniel in the last session by letting her introduce herself, which was rather churlish of me, so I'm not going to make that mistake with Betsy Glick. Uh, conveniently, I met Betsy in London as we're having such a transatlantic moment with Names Not Numbers. And curiously, for somebody so senior at People magazine, you might think she's one of the most distinguished news journalists of her generation. I met her when she was on uh, Time magazine, and she now, uh, amongst her many executive functions oversees the um, news and human interest coverage of people. And uh, you can read the full unexpurgated biography, but I'm going to leave Betsy to introduce her panel. I'm going to hand over for this very good session to Betsy Glick. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Wow. Okay. You can all believe that I am the most distinguished news journalist of my generation. Um, <laughs> and I'm accompanied by several others. I'm going to introduce everybody, starting with Mark Hamzada on my right. Um, Mark is the designer sportswear editor for Women's Wear Daily. And um, what I just said to him is that when I pulled some clips to do some research for this panel, I discovered that most of them had been written by him. Um, that, that is true. I, he's, um, he has covered accessories, the fashion industry. He um, has been to countless costume galas. Um, and he is going to be speaking mostly probably about sort of this intersection of fashion and celebrity, which is having a huge moment right now. Uh, on my direct right is Diane Clehane, and um, she has written for People magazine, among other publications. She has written a book about Diana and blogs about royalty. Um, she was also just saying that she has written a book about celebrities and their mothers, and that that's a very good way to get celebrities talking. So talking, um, talking, she could perhaps give us some gossip after the session. Uh, on my direct left is, left is Mark Harris. Mark Harris is, um, a, was a longtime editor and writer for Entertainment Weekly. He now writes a column for Entertainment Weekly. He has also, let me see, I'm finding his bio here. He is also, he's uh, one of my oldest friends. Um, <laughs> He has written a fantastic book called Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood, um, about some of the greatest movies ever made. And he's at work on a new book, which um, is also about the movies, and uh, I'm not sure I can reveal more than that, um, the movies in World War II. And on the far left is Bob Guccione Jr., who is described as a media entrepreneur here. He founded Spin Magazine, most notably in in the context of the celebrity realm. Um, and he has also just returned from teaching journalism in Oxford, Mississippi. And um, so he can sort of tell us a little bit, I think, about where journalism might be going. Uh, as Julia said, I am an editor at People Magazine. So if that is not celebrity, I don't know what is. And I brought a little bit of show and tell for everybody. I wasn't supposed to have AV, so I have extremely old-fashioned show and tell. Um, I oversee all of the real people stories in the magazine. So the question is, here are the three most recent issues. Um, Ashley. This is somebody named Ashley. Is she a real person or a celebrity? She's on the cover of People magazine. This is Kay Kaylee Anthony, a small child who was murdered, and her mother, Casey Anthony, on trial for her murder. Celebrity or real person? Kate Middleton, recent newlywed. 
celebrity <laughs> or real person. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that as the editor of Real People Stories, I edited two out of three of these cover stories um, at People Magazine, Royals are real people. They are not celebrities. This person named Ashley, who actually is truly a real person, like I don't even know what she does. She, I don't know, maybe she's a realtor. She's, 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 oh, she's a sad sack bachelorette who was, a, I guess, a third runner-up to the previous bachelor and is now on her quest to find love in the current season. Right, but not she's going well. a real person. <laughs> she's, she is not a real person. She is a showbiz person. And this person is also a real person. However, last night as I was going to sleep, I heard on CNN, tomorrow on Showbiz Tonight, mm -hmm. more about the Casey Anthony murder case. There was Nancy, there was so Nancy it's being covered as a showbiz story. Yeah. It's being covered in, in the foremost celebrity magazine, which reaches 45 million readers every week. Um, and so I guess what my point is here is that we're living in a moment where celebrity is... The, the lines of celebrity and real peoplehood are completely blurred and very confusing. And um, I believe, having had some advanced conversation with my panelists, that there are people on this stage who think that this development is the end of civilization as we know it, that our infatuation and our interest in celebrity is, is a narcotic, um, so I'm hoping that we're going to have a lively discussion about that. I also, you know, I pulled, when I said I pulled some research, um, I, I pulled a little bit, bit of research about reality TV and the rise of reality TV right now. Um, in 2001, reality TV was 20% of television programming. Now it's 40%. Um, last year, 15 of the top 20 TV shows were reality shows. And in 2010, the Kardashians, I'm just going to assume that this distinguished crowd all know who the Kardashians are. They were, um, these are the last three issues, that they were four issues ago on the cover of People. The Kardashians earned more than Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise, and Sandra Bullock combined. Um, so something is going on here about celebrity and about fame and the pursuit of fame, or is it perhaps, as I might argue, the pursuit of something other than fame? But I'd like to turn this to uh, Bob, who um, is the person who I think feels that what's happening is dangerous in this world. Absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, first of all, I wanted to say I was going to was going to write a book on World War II movies, but now I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm unemployed now, if anybody has a job. Uh, now, um, I had an interesting conversation with Betsy last night, in which I apologetically said, oh, I hope I don't ruin this panel, but I think the whole, lot of, the whole fascination and obsession with uh, celebrity is, uh, is awful, it's nonsense, it's uh, deleterious to society, it's... Um, it devalues us as a people, devalues each of us individually in some small way, no, no matter how close or far we are from it. Um, whereas I understood and do understand escapism, and uh, I've never yet had a girlfriend who didn't read those magazines cover to cover. Um, I understand it as escapism to the limit of a single dose 
Um, and I have my own escapism, as most of the men in this room will know. We <coughs> like sports. We have other things we like to get us to, to escape from our realities. Um, but the, the main, and I was trying to think on the way over here today, I thought, my God, all I am is, is down on it. And, you know, and I, 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 that won't be very helpful. So let me try and work out exactly why I am down it. I am categorically, emphatically, passionately down on our society today as being so utterly obsessed by this phenomenon. And these are the reasons. Number one and simplest, as Betsy uh, earlier referenced, it is a narcotic. It's an it's a opiate. And I think, you know, there was a time when opium dens uh, ruined the uh, society of China and finally they had to go in and close them because no one was doing anything else but, but smoking opium all day long. And in a sense, we're doing that. We're, we're absorbing the opiate of celebrity to the point of where we have blurred the lines and long forgotten that it is make-believe, that Tom Cruise isn't a person called Tom Cruise. He's each personality he plays. And when the poor guy actually expresses himself as Tom Cruise, we make fun of him. The guy got passionate about getting married, and the guy's lampooned for the rest of his life about jumping on a couch. It's the first time I thought Oprah was interesting. Somebody got up, moved around, great. You know, Jesus, I would jump on the couch <laughs> if only out of boredom. But, um, you know, poor guy gets mocked for being Tom Cruise, the first and only time he was ever Tom Cruise. The rest of the time, he's the Mission Impossible guy or some other actor. He's a personality. Actors and actresses are very, very, very rarely who they are. Um, and so I think we've blurred. And, that, and also, I think it has seeped out like a, like a, like a gas it has seeped out across us to where we think their lives are important. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the thing about reality TV. I would actually suggest it's much higher than 40% because you can almost include the entirety of some news channels. MSNBC, what's that? The, the gossip entertainment uh, celebrity-based channel. He headline news isn't. <laughs> you know, I think it's half an hour a day they do headline news. The rest of the time it's the Nancy Grace type, you know, bacchanalia of, of who's doing what and... And there's a destructiveness and there's a meanness to it. Um, and I, I, th I want to accept here, accept people, make an exception of People magazine. Also Us magazine, I think. I think they, you know... I paid him to say that. You should did, yeah. Not well, but, you know. <laughs> but uh, as I said, I'm not going to write that book now, so I'm free. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I mean that. And, uh, you know, I think a few of the other magazines, I, I don't think OK is very good, but some of these other, even Star, I think they, they understand their entertainment. Um, and they are single dosages. Each week, it's a single dose. Now, online is different. That's a per, you know, perforation. It's everywhere. So I do think there's a narcotic aspect to it, and I think it takes us away from dealing with some of the other realities of life, which, and I don't want to be boring and say everybody should be reading National Geographic and foreign affairs. I don't think that's true. But I do think a little more engagement in the real world might not be such a bad idea, given how poorly our uh, society and country is slipping. It wouldn't be such a bad idea to be a little more educated and perhaps a little more um, discerning in who we elect and how we uh, approach civic duties. But the other thing um, that I, I think is really, really the problem is that our obsession with the lives of other people who are, let's face it, not real. Even the real people aren't real anymore. Kardashians aren't real. Uh, the princess is different. The princess is, you know, an accepted, inherited, inherited fantasy. But I think that we devalue ourselves. I think when we start elevating the Kardashians as important people, when we start thinking, well, okay, they made lots of money, therefore everything about them is somehow admirable, somehow aspirational, somehow we have to be like them, that it's okay to be the kinds of awful moronic people they are. Um, you know, I think that devalues us, uh, each of us, every one of us in this room is somewhat slightly devalued. 
So I wanted to make that distinction. I'm not just saying, oh, it's terrible, and I'm 55, and we should all be reading classics again, and you know, watch, watching National Geographic Channel. I don't do either of those things personally, but so I can't advocate them. I think a little more of it might be all right. But no, I do think that we forget when we become so absorbed and spend so many hours caring about what's happening with these people, um, and we become so salacious in covering the minutiae of a trial that's somewhat, somewhat salacious and scandalous, then I think we lose something as a society. So that's my take on it. And Dan, not take any more time. Well, I mean, I think as I expected you to throw some some flames into this, um, and but you you made an interesting point about sort of that we think that celebrities are that the Kardashians are important. Mm -hmm. um, and then you made an exception somehow for the royal family. And we have an expert on the, on the royals here with Diane. Um, I would disagree. I mean, if you make an exception for the royal family, why not make an exception for anybody? Me, but that would be, yeah. that's where I come from. I happen not to like the royal family. Right. And I grew up in England. And I, I did not like them for all the reasons I've just said. That people got absorbed into that. And they somehow devalued themselves and thought they were lesser people. And they're not lesser people. I used to argue that. Um, and I grew up very working class in England, so I was a very non-royal. But I do think that the American fascination with the British royals is somewhat like the American fascination with Florentine art. You know, I think it's just an <laughs> abstract object. You know, so that's the exception. <laughs> okay, Diane, what do you think about that? Florentine art? Florentine or? art. Well, no, you know, I think it's really interesting because, I mean, I've been covering celebrities for too long to want to say the year. But um, when, I, when I decided to write the book on Diana and when she died, she was the most famous woman in the world. And there it's amazing to think that she was able to achieve that status, you know, pre-internet age, and that, you know, there was sort of, she sort of crossed all boundaries. And what was really interesting to me is, as a journalist, as a freelance journalist, um, I cover a whole sort of spectrum of people, but I was sort of at loose ends in terms of, I wasn't particularly interested in covering a lot of the people that were sort of on offer. Did you want to, you know, I, I'm, aside from being too old and, and you know, having a six-year-old, I don't want to go stand on the red carpet and ask the Olsons what they're wearing. I just, I can't <laughs> do that anymore. I've done that, you know. So when sort of Kate Middleton has been sort of bubbling around for the last, you know, she was with William for forever until, you know, Wadey Katie, you know, got her man. So when the engagement happened, it, I thought it was a really interesting phenomenon that, that people did, they seemed to sort of embody a different kind of celebrity. I mean, they weren't, you know, they were coming on the heels of 30 years of scandal in the royal family. I mean, they were sort of, you know, Tony Blair pulled the whole thing back from the precipice when he decided, you know, to, if anybody's seen the Queen, you know, that that story where he decided to sort of, you know, tell them, no, that you have to acknowledge his outpouring of Diana. But they've been on sort of shaky ground ever since. So when William and Kate sort of came on the scene as you know, uh, Killiam or whatever you want to sort of call them. Wilcat. Wilcat, yes. Um, it, it was interesting to me because they sort of cut through the clutter of the Z-listers, you know, the, the Kardashians, you know, Snooki. The fact that I even know who Snooki is is frightening to me on so many levels. But, you know, the idea that, that these two, I think what was interesting to me is they sort of, I mean, it's, it's naive to sort of say this given the culture, but they... I think made people feel optimistic. I mean, certainly they sort of re-energized national pride in the UK to such an extent. I mean, I'm always fascinated when I do talk to people that are from the UK, the, 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 the national pride that comes from the royal family and the history has been there forever. But mm -hmm. William and Kate seem to, I mean, is she Diana 2.0? No. Um, I think she'll never achieve, achieve the level of fame Diana has because we've become so niche in our celebrity. I mean, I think they're... One of the things that I, when I was preparing my remarks today, sort of what strikes me is in the last decade, 
You can be a celebrity, you can be a huge celebrity to a very small number of people. I mean, a la Bethany Frankel. I mean, who would have thought that this woman would be on the cover of Forbes magazine? She is sort of emblematic of the modern day celebrity. Whereas William and Kate are a bit of a throwback, and I think the royals sort of occupy a very specific niche in sort of the celebrity culture. We still sort of see them as somewhat untouchable. That's why I was horrified to see her that picture of her with the pushing a shopping cart. I said, I don't want to think of her pushing a shopping cart. The reason I'm interested in her is because her life really doesn't have anything to do with mine. And I think that's why most people continue to be interested. You know, here's a real princess or, you know, a real prince. But I think as long as they sort of remain sort of untouched by scandal and they seem awfully savvy. I also think what's really fascinating, which to me sort of set the whole tone, when I first saw the royal wedding official website, that was being put out by Clarence House. I mean, that was worthy of a People magazine production. I mean, NBC quickly looked at that and came up with the Windsor nod and did all their own variations on that. But the royals were their own best publicists, which was a fascinating turn of events when, you know, they basically, you know, just completely chastised Diana for being this media creation. And here they are trying to get in front of that train now. And I think what they're trying to do is sort of keep that going, make William and Kate, Kate specifically, a more palatable Diana, not to us, but to them, and to make them, sure... Them, the Brits? Them, the, them the royals. I mean... Oh, more palatable to the to family the, To the family. And, and one of the people that I... Um, my book on Diana sort of got me involved in a lot of the lives of people that knew her very well, and so much so that a few of them came to my wedding, and, and they've sort of stayed in touch. But there wasn't really a lot going on for a really long time until this girl sort of came onto the scene, but what someone had recently told me is that you might think you're seeing them a lot, but you're really not. You're just seeing this proliferation of images. I mean, they went to the Trooping of the Color and uh, Prince Philip's 90th birthday, and the images were instantaneous. I mean, they were everywhere. So you get a sense they're more sort of out there than they are. They very much want to sort of be very careful. They're going to dole out Kate in very sort of small little sort of morsels because they don't want to create another Diana so that she overshadows the entire family. But they also know very astutely that they need that those two, they need to be the starring players in this ongoing saga, which is the British royal family. They need these two. I mean, because if, if the goodwill of the people sort of you know, sort of, they're not interested in them, or, you know, God forbid they split up. I think the big thing is going to be when she gets pregnant, which I would assume will be in the next year, and then, you know, that'll be the, the baby bump watch for all baby bump watches. We, we hope. That will be, you know, huge. But I also think what's interesting is that if you think of the, the, the families in the past, I honestly, I said this to somebody, um, I'm more fascinated by the Middletons. They're far more interesting to me than the royals. I mean, you know, Pippa's got something like 40-some-odd Facebook pages <coughs> devoted to her bottom. And, uh, you know, she's on all the entertainment shows, Pippa Watch, and I'm sure when the, when the brother puts on a dress again, that'll be another big deal because they're sort of keeping him sort of... And I'm in love with the father. I think he's the most charming. He's like the perfect father of the bride. If you went to the store and said, give me the father of the bride in the box, he would be the guy that you would see. So I think they're a fascinating family. I mean, they really got lucky. The royals got really lucky with the Middletons, I think, in order to sort of drive that story. But I, they're in a different category. They're not in the Kardashians. They're not in, you know, they're not Snooky. You know, there's, there's a whole sort of sliding scale. And it does, as you said, go all the way down to the dirt. Mm -hmm. that's, and I think that's, you know, that's the culture. I mean, I think, is there too much of it? Yes. Um, I think, you know, celebrities want to be viewed as real people. Real people want to be celebrities. 
and it's this very sort of symbiotic thing that goes around and around and keeps the wheels greased of, you know, every media outlet out there. Well, I also think, I mean, what it is is business. Exactly. I mean, perhaps not for the royal family. The royal family is an exception where they are not trying to make money off of their brand. Um, but everybody else is trying to make money off of their brand. And I just, I have a little tidbit every morning at People Magazine, we, um, the editors write a little list of kind of the breaking stories in their areas. Um, and last Thursday, this is a real budget line from a People Magazine um, 10 o'clock meeting from the style editor, says, Celebrity Marketplace News. Rush Limbaugh is launching his own line of sweet tea. The band, Train, have become winemakers, and Snooky flip-flops are coming soon. So, Mark, yeah. <laughs> tell me about those Snooky flip-flops. I, I don't have a pair yet, but I'm trying. <laughs> and Rush Limbaugh, you know, marketing tea. You, yes. in particular, yeah. are seeing this incredible intersection, right, between... Right. A celebrity as a fashion icon, a celebrity as a fashion designer, a fashion designer as a celebrity. Uh, what's happening? Is, is there a change or is it just... Well, I think it's been growing over the past 10 years. What we've seen is celebrities trying to get into the fashion business. Some of them put their names on lines, but it's kind of become more than that. In order to be successful, you've got to have a viable business. You've got to be able to stand behind your product and not just have snooky... Uh, Flip-flops, I mean, I'm not sure how they're going to be different from other flip-flops the They're going to be very high-heeled, because she's very tall. Right, that's cool. But I think fashion as a business is considered to be quite a sexy business. It's quite an attractive business, and everyone wants to have a bit of the action, really. And so from, from celebrities sitting in the front row of fashion shows, it's kind of evolved into celebrities striking deals with manufacturers or celebrities hiring designers to create lines and some of them are very successful you've got someone like a Victoria Beckham who's really morphed from being a Spice Girl and not even a good one at that mm -hmm. to being a you know really good designer that the fashion industry takes very seriously you think about the bottom line it can be you know very lucrative someone like uh, the Mary-Kate Mary and Ashley Olsen have transformed their business into a $500 million business in just a few years with three different labels. And Jessica Simpson, who again, you know, came out of the reality TV show music industry, uh, is slated to do a billion dollars next year. So I think it can be very lucrative, but more than that, it's an, it's, it, it's an opportunity to differentiate yourself. Just like fashion is, you know, the way you tie your scarf or the way you you, uh, you know, wear your bag under your shoulder is a way for you to make a statement. And I think that fashion lines can help a celebrity, if done correctly, to, to really differentiate themselves from the rest. Well, so, I mean, this, this panel has a lofty title, Celebrity, the Ultimate yeah. Individual. Um, is fashion the way that people do that? I mean, can you, can you look at something and say that is, you know, a Jessica Simpson shoe? Well, I think it can, can that be. That is a Victoria it, Beckham. Yeah, I think it can be. I think Victoria Beckham is a great example because she's really stepped back from that celebrity scene and said, all right, you know, she's married to David Beckham, so she is going to be a celebrity. No, no but she's a what, serious she, designer, right? But she's a serious designer and she has a good team around her and she sort of knows how to, you know, 
she, she's a designer and she, she plays by the rules of the fashion industry, which I think is very important. You know, that's the first step to being taken seriously. Whereas, you know, you get some celebrities who sign licensing deals and it sort of goes flat very quickly because they're not authentic. And, well, so is that because the celebrity herself has no inherent following or the celebrity is a crappy designer or, I mean, what, what makes Jessica Simpson succeed and, I don't know, Sarah Jessica Parker's right. fashion line not right. succeed? I think it's 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 about the amount of attention they devote to it. I think that you get some celebrities who sign deals and are not necessarily involved, and then when you get the final product, there's a lack of authenticity. You get someone like uh, Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. Well, they're fashion girls. I mean, they love fashion. It's what they do. In fact, I think they've kind of put their entertainment side of the business Absolutely. on the back burner to right. focus on fashion. Right. So to me, that that seems more authentic and I think the fashion press takes notice and then as it, there's a ripple effect where other people start to take them more seriously as well. Right, okay. All right. Well, and so then, Mark, I know from, I know from years of discussion and from, from talking before this panel that, um, that this notion that celebrities or people to be scorned is much more complicated in your view. Um, yeah, I, I think it is. I'm, I'm interested in the distinction that you made right at the beginning of this panel talking about your work at People of um, celebrities versus real people. Um, because if real people are real people, then celebrities are what people? Fake people? Or characters, which is how we really think of them. Sort of characters in a big multi-character ongoing soap opera uh, drama, but I think the second that we start to think of celebrities as not real people, we we make a distinction um, in the way we can talk about them and the way we can think about them that leads to what I think is a certain amount of rancor and tension and and hostility in in the the interface between we as celebrity consumers, which as Bob pointed out, we all are now, um, and the celebrities themselves. Um, you know, I was thinking about uh, Andy Warhol's famous "In the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes" uh, dictum of so many decades ago, and I, I thought we're we're not living through that anymore. We're we're living through the aftermath of it, where everyone was famous for 15 minutes, and we have this huge pool of people now who are trying to extend that 15 minutes well past the expiration date, um, and. And the other thing is, I don't know how many of you ever saw the movie The Incredibles, but um, this this cartoon, which had one of the main characters issued this sort of Anne Randian complaint that, you know, in a world where everybody is special, then nobody is. Right. Um, you know, I think that as the number of celebrities proliferates and as the number of people who want to define themselves as celebrities proliferates, we get this kind of interesting tension in what we want from celebrities. We, we, we want to look up to them, but there's also an entire industry devoted to looking down on them, and an, an entire class of celebrity now, which was basically generated, I think, largely by reality television, that um, fuels a world of, you know, not people, but the magazines that want to be people. Um, you know, uh, and most of them are young women, and most of them are young women whose lives are sold to women as 
simultaneously, I would argue, aspirational and contemptible. Mm -hmm. um, That's very true. They have stuff that we want or we think we want, but we also feel strongly that we would use it better if we had it than they are, that we would be less trashy um, than they are. And I think it's in the case of those sorts of celebrities an absolutely fair distinction that you draw between celebrities and real people. When I look at a show or a franchise, since there are seven shows, uh, like The Real Housewives on Bravo, what I see, uh, and I say this non-homophobically from personal experience, is characters that a very smart gay child would have invented. Like, you take these women and you put a lot of makeup all over their face and a lot of jewelry on them and give them big, big boobs and make them yell a lot. And then the dolls have little fights. And that is basically the staff of Bravo. I mean, I think as the people at Bravo would admit, that's who they are. That's how they invented these women. And I, I think the women in many ways know that they're those characters. Absolutely. There are people who want to be like them. There are people who think they're appalling. There are people who think they're appalling and want to be like them. Um, I was also fascinated by what you said about reality TV having uh, jumped from, what is it, 20 to 40% uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to note that... Uh, on the new fall network schedule, I think only one out of 45 shows uh, that's being added to the schedules is a reality show. So we may have possibly hit a saturation point. On the other hand, there are now whole cable networks devoted to reality shows, and the, the, the reality shows that are on networks are among the most popular shows on TV. And I'm fascinated by how those shows play out the distinction between real people and celebrities. Because you have, on the one hand, a show like The Celebrity Apprentice, the Donald Trump franchise, which is devoted to the, the, the premise that, like, what if a celebrity became a real person? What if a celebrity had to do something like a job? Even though, you know, A, most of them do jobs of sorts, and B, what they do on The Celebrity Apprentice is not a job. Um, but between uh, a lot of the a lot of reality shows seem to um be either about celebrities who are pretending to be real people like celebrity apprentice celebrity big brother in other countries uh celebrity rehab or more often uh real people who want to be celebrities um either real people who want to be celebrities in the bravo mold like my life is inherently interesting enough as a stylist or a designer or a photographer so that you should follow me around and make a show about me, or people who are literally auditioning to be celebrities, uh, to be showbiz celebrities, like on American Idol or, or The Voice. Um, and I would argue that The Bachelor franchise is a show about real people. It's sort of the inverse of, of, uh, of uh, Celebrity Apprentice. It's a show about real people pretending to be celebrities. What if you were someone who could date 25 women sequentially who would all live in your palace and, you know, every week you could knock a few of them off the list based on how they performed and ultimately you could pick your princess. That's a, that's a real people show, but it's an aspirational celebrity show as well. And I think that some of the toxicity of this, and this is the last thing I'll say since I've spit enough venom at this whole subject Which now, I wasn't expecting is, at all. <laughs> um, the venom side. Uh, I think that the, the dangerous new wrinkle to me is that 
uh, the rise of social media encourages us yes. to think of ourselves as celebrities. You know, if you have a Facebook account, you know how many friends you have. Mm -hmm. You can also look and see how many friends your friends have. Mm -hmm. And now if you have a Twitter account, you can see how many followers you have. Not friends, mm -hmm. but followers. And followers is, to me, this really insidious, quasi-religious word that suggests that you are worth following. But, yeah. but it's also the whole Twitter phenomenon to me erases the distinction between celebrity and non-celebrity because yeah. if you're on Twitter, if you have an account and you have 187 followers like your cousins and people you went to high school with and stuff and Charlie Sheen has 3.5 million followers, you can say, well, I'm not as famous as Charlie Sheen. But by doing that, what you're saying is we're in the it's same ballpark. Like, yeah, we're, we're like essentially in the same field. You know, Charlie Sheen has got, I'll get to 3.5 million. I'm just not there yet. And, and I think that wanting to be famous and not being famous, and I, I'll never forget this thing I read about five years ago that said that 40% of all Americans under 18 mm -hmm. expect to be famous. Nope. Not, not. I actually have it. It's 51% of 18 to 25-year-olds said that their primary goal was to get to famous. famous. Right. So what happens when they don't? Like, we're going to have a lot of... 26 to 32 year olds walking around kind of angry and probably especially angry at people who are famous. famous. So I, I guess I'll end by agreeing with Bob that while I don't think this is anything that's going to go away because you know there's celebrity culture in India there's celebrity culture in every European culture uh, it's, it's, it is an opiate but it's lasted a long long time uh, yeah, I don't think it's especially healthy. Okay, well, so I have to jump in here because Mark has completely pulled the rug out from under me. <laughs> I would like to argue that a lot of generalizations are being made on this stage and that one person's poison is another person's inspiration. Oh, absolutely. And one person's high culture is another person's low co culture and that there is a reason why these stories are fascinating to us. Um, I'm not saying that I'm a giant fan of the Housewives franchise, because I'm not. However, I am a huge, giant fan of The Amazing Race and yeah, Top Chef, and, you know, that happens to be my reality TV thing. Those people on those shows are also trying to get famous. Every single one of those shows is an audition, I believe, for mm -hmm. their next sure. celebrity job. Sure. But I think that, um, you know, Bob said made the distinction between important and interesting. And I think that's a really important distinction because Kim Kardashian might, might not be important. I think maybe everybody can agree she's not important except perhaps as a money machine um, and a phenomenon. But to some people, she's really, really interesting. The, her search for love, her engagement. I mean, these are stories that are no more or no less interesting than Kate Middleton's search for love and engagement and getting a big fancy ring and having a big fancy wedding. I mean, these are, these are iconic stories. Um, some of them, not Kim Kardashian, but some of the stories that I am completely absorbed in in my job have elements, for instance, John Elizabeth Edwards. Oh, yeah. Elements yeah. of the, the most unbelievable Greek tragedies. 
Um, there's, there's a reason why we are consuming these stories, and I guess what I would say is they are stories. Um, but I think it has I, a lot I, to do with what, what Mark was saying. I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with everything you were saying. I think what's really interesting to me is, now I was sort of a late adopter to Facebook, but I, I, I think that that is very true, that in today everybody wants to be a celebrity or believes that they are. Now that doesn't mean that you all, everyone warrants a cover on People Magazine, but within your sphere, you know, you can be a celebrity. I do um, a column for Media Bistro called Lunch at Michael's, and I've been doing it for five years, which I can't believe, in the fall. Now, I, you know, I was there, I was having lunch one day, this man came by and said, are you wearing Chanel? I said, yes, he walked away. I said, what was that about later? Someone said, oh, there's this column. I called him up as a true media person, said, I don't want to be the anonymous woman wearing Chanel, I want credit for my Chanel. And I have <laughs> subsequently been doing this column where this restaurant is filled every Wednesday, is the day to go if you want to be in the column. And, you know, a reality show, I've been there when, like, a Nene Leakes, who you can't miss because she's nine feet tall and, you know, just this person. And she comes in and no one bats an eye. But Warren Buffett comes in and you can hear a pin drop there because that's the universe. And everybody that, you know, is there is there to be seen. God Give me Michael's people, but you don't always go there for the for the cop salad um, <laughs> or the ten dollar diet coke. Um, but um, it, what's interesting to me is that within that universe, this is a very important part of the people in that universe want to be seen. They want to be written about. Nobody likes being written about more than the people in the media because I get press releases and emails from people. Can you go back in and put? I was wearing Chanel. Can you put best selling in front of author when you mention me? I've gotten it all. I've gotten press releases from people saying that they're coming to have lunch at this restaurant. So within that sort of universe, you can be famous there. You know, that's your universe of celebrity. The Facebook thing, you know, I didn't want to do it, and then I thought, well, here I have all these stories I'm doing. So, you know, before I, you know, I did it, then I thought, okay, I'm going to start putting my links up. And then the next thing you know, what I respond to is, you know, I, I sort of document what my six-year-old daughter does, and then that turned into a mommy blog, and then that's turning into a possible book kind of a thing. So everybody sort of defines themselves now by the way that they're sort of marketing their brand, and that could be, you know, someone that has no other aspirations and to make sure that she uses the same lip gloss as Kim Kardashian, and in a way that whole aspirational connection is, I think, mostly what keeps coming, what makes people come back to these people. And I, I, I mean, I haven't missed one season of The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. And I think, yeah, you, I, it's real estate porn to me because I think it's amazing where they get to go. But there is this sense where, you know, it, young girls that I've interviewed, I've gone on dates with The Bachelors for stories, and it's this whole sense where you see these people and they have this sort of sort of glow of celebrity around them by virtue of the fact that they've become presence on these shows. And I think that people want to be like them, but then when, you know, these romances detonate two days later, as they always do when the show ends, there's this feeling of superiority. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't do that, or see, that's why I don't, I would never go on that show, when secretly it's because they know they never, they never can. So it's that whole sort of, I think, push-pull that people have with reality television. I think reality television makes a lot of people feel a lot better about their lives. And that's why a lot of people But it's such a low it. bar. It's such a low bar. Oh, I, mean, I think it's great to feel better about your life. And I think that we should always be striving to not only make ourselves better, but other people. We in the media should be striving to make other people better. And again, I don't mean it's all lofty and uppercase you know, letters. 
and I know I've taken the role here of the guy who's poo-pooing the whole thing, but that's my problem with it. It's so damn low. You know, the reality TV shows that we're talking about today, imagine if you were staying in a motel somewhere in the country and this exact same conversation was happening next door. You'd complain to the management. You'd say, shut these people up. I can't sleep. They're screaming and shouting at each other. Yet we watch it in the millions. And I'm just saying, uh, you know, this, look, it's not going to change. And I'm certainly the last person in the world who's going to be able to change it. No one's going to really say, let's pull these shows off the air. Bob made a few good points this morning, you know. Um, so it'll go on. But I do think it's worth being a voice out there that just says and marks the occasion, look, I think this is bad for us. I also want to make, if I may, one point about social media. I think what Mark said is dead on. It's really, really, really dead on. There's one other level of it, too, is that I think the world has become so utterly overwhelming Oh, that individuals feel like they don't exist. They need to be part of And something. they need to leave a thumbprint on that great white wall, that great dirty, now well dirtied white wall with the smudges. They have to say, I have a cat and it got sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they post a picture of the sick cat, you know. And that's it. Like, I existed. Kilroy was no, here. That's true. That's you know, true. and I think it all blends. I think it all blends. I think the, um, the subjection to this dreck actually also makes us um, feel like we're not there. You know, yes, I understand aspirational, but I think it's one thing to aspire to, you know, rock stars, for instance. You know, rock stars were the single combat warriors of pop culture, I thought. Mm -hmm. You know, when I had Spin Magazine, I thought their importance is that, you know, you can say, that guy's out there fighting for me. He's like not going to school, man. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was important. Mm -hmm. And I said to Betsy yesterday, like me, there's one point too, that I think there's a real difference between celebrity and fame. And the difference is that famous people did something. You know, maybe it was a small thing. Maybe Bon Jovi in the history isn't going to quite stack up to Winston Churchill, right? But you know what? He did something. He sold a lot of records, and he is a good person, and he does stuff for charity, and he's interesting and intellectual and a lot of other things. Um, But he's not Winston Churchill, nor does he try to be. But at least he's famous. And then you've got the Kardashians and the Snookies, who are just celebrities. And the, the only good thing I think comes out of this is the soup. (laughs) <laughs> That's half an hour of pure genius each week. <laughs> it is great. It's, great. it's not all it bad. I think this is a really important distinction that you've made. And, and, you know, you said you watch Top Chef and love it. And I do too. And the reason I love it is because those people can do something yes. that I will never be able right. to do, which is pull together like an amazing meal under strict lab conditions right. in a half hour. Um, <laughs> I think there is an important distinction between people who become famous and even celebrities because they did something something. that you find interesting and the Real Housewives and the Snookies and all of those people who, well, there's a third category, which is, you said, John and Elizabeth Edwards. There are people who are already famous who go through some personal trauma, whether it was, you know, Betty Ford's breast cancer and alcoholism in the 1970s or the John and Elizabeth Edwards story or celebrities who lose a child or celebrities who uh, fight a disease that makes them, gives them a fascinating dual status. They are both, you know, uh, ordinary people who go through something that other people go through and famous. And so they, they are both remote and relatable. I think Farrah Fawcett was a really right. fascinating recent example where you know you saw, if you watch this documentary, which in many ways was like a horrifying piece of self-exploitation, it was also a really intimate story about what it's like to die of cancer. That's a fascinating kind of mm-hmm. second category. But there is this third category, the Real Housewives, the Snookies, the mm-hmm. Kardashians, the Jersey Shore people, the Hills people, um, that I would argue are a substitute 
for what people used to get in daytime soaps. There were 30 years ago 19 daytime soap operas uh, on the networks and several magazines entirely devoted to not the actors on them, but the characters they played, you know. Uh, huge headlines would say, you know, Marlena's secret baby, and Marlena would be like a fictional character. Well, at the end of this year, there will be only four soap operas left on the air. Um, the scripted soap opera is a dying genre, and probably in five years there won't be any. Oh, I think next year. I mean, GH is going to go when Katie goes, when Katie comes but, to the scene. Don't we already have the substitutes? I mean, isn't that exactly what all the rest of these shows are? Uh, you know, and and the semi-scripted or not entirely fly-on-the-wall documentary nature of them is, is um, you know, a, a step toward soaps. I mean, they have producers who come up with plot lines. Um, so, I, I mean... I think that's maybe a little pernicious to watch these things and maybe a little harmless for, you know, right, I think, you know, every, it's sort of choose your form of escapism. Is it worse than spending all day playing video games or is it just a matter of taste? Mm-hmm. Um, See, that's where I would argue it's a matter of taste yes. and that one person's, you know, gross, horrible story is another person's, right. you know, exposure to a kind of lifestyle that they haven't right. dreamt of and it's just... A, that it is escapism. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of this, remember this great episode of The Office several years ago, The American Office, where uh, Jim had gone away to work at another office for a while and he finally came back to his office and Kelly, the celebrity-obsessed um, character there, said, oh my God, I'm so glad you're back. You missed so much. And he said, what? And she said, well, Ben Affleck was with Jennifer Aniston, but he broke up and he's with Jennifer Garner now. And Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are together. And Jim said, yeah, but what's been happening here? And she said, I just told you. (laughs) So it it can become dangerous. Yes, it can. It's true. Um, There's somebody in the audience who is dying to jump in. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, Rosie Millard. I'm a journalist from London. I've just been on a celebrity show, a a reality show. Um, And I think Mark's points were really absolutely... To, to the point. This show I was on is called Celebrity 5 Go To Blah Blah Blah, wherever. It goes, takes different bunches of Z-list celebrities um, to various places around the world. And we went to Lanzarote. To where? Lanzarote. It's a, one of the Canary Islands. Okay. okay. And um, this is going to be, this epic piece of television is going to be shown <laughs> on Channel 4 next month in about three weeks' time. Um, and uh, it, was, it was very interesting how it was cast. I mean, basically, this is non-scripted drama, and the, 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 the reality about reality television is that it's quite cheap, and it's a lot cheaper than drama. Now, there were five of us. Um, there was me, university-educated, broadsheet newspaper um, writer, former arts correspondent of the BBC, and absolute, Bob is absolutely right, Arts news has been totally replaced by entertainment news. I did, you know, the, the BBC's wish to have a celebrity on every bulletin meant that I basically stood on the red carpet and said, not what are you wearing, but who are you wearing, to a lot of people. Uh, that, those were the stories I tended to do. Not all of them, but most of them. Okay, so it was me. Um, then there is uh, a medium, 
<laughs> who believed in auras and dead children as, walking as through houses and yeah. all this sort of stuff. Um, there was a glamour model uh, whose opening salvo to me was, hey, all your friends got boob jobs, Ed Mosey. I said, well, actually, none of them have. Okay. That's great dialogue. And, and, dialogue. And there was someone from Coronation Street and there was a stand-up comic. Now, we were basically cast against type. And I will, I will sort of, you know, I've yet to see this programme, so I've yet to see how I've been completely stitched up in the edit room. <laughs> but the fact is that we discussed some quite interesting things. You know, me and the glamour model had, you know, any number of arguments about whether it's right or wrong to have a boob job when you're 24. In fact, she'd had two boob jobs. And I questioned this. You know, we discussed whether it's right to call somebody of 46, mother of four, that's me, a girl. I, I would say, no, I don't want to be good. So we, we would have proper discussions about interesting things in daily life. And there were dramas. You know, I think being a medium is rubbish. And I told this medium so, and he said, oh, no, I can see this and that. And I just said, it's so stupid. You know, when you die, you pass over. No, you don't pass over. You die. That's it. Now, hopefully, you know, these issues, which are important issues, is there an afterlife, etc., are going to be broadcast in this format. And... I think it's as valid a format as a scripted drama. It's just a lot cheaper. And if that could hook people in to think about these issues, should you call a 46-year-old mother of four a girl? Yeah. Should you have a boob job? Should you believe in mediums? Then I think it's a valid piece of communication. And if it's the, if it's the, 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 if it's the fashionable thing to watch, then, then yeah, be it uh, as it may. Won't it, won't it depend on how much they leave in, though? Right. You know, if they... It's all about the boob job talk. Rosie sounds like she's out of a Harold Pinter play, by the way. It sounds like the opening line to a Harold Pinter play, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and it's a Harold Pinter character. Genius. I mean, but, every single time we would have an argument about something around the dinner table or, uh, you know, uh, we all had to jump in the water and swim on lilos around a catamaran and things like this. Um, <laughs> yeah, every single time we did something... We would be all taken out singly by the team and interviewed about that thing. You know, so, for example, the Coronation Street star, who was a 70-year-old man, we all had to go on different trips. My trip was to do something cultural, obviously. Um, his trip was to take us to see a pole dancer. You know, and it was just so... Because I, by then I'd become the sort of flag bearer for Jermaine Greer. You know, it was sort of... <laughs> they took them out one by one, the other celebs, and said, what do you think Rosie's going to think? You know, and then they took me out. What do you think of this you know, Latvian woman who was taking her kit off and dancing around on a pole in front of us? And I just said, look, it is not illegal. It is fine. But I don't want my daughters to do it. And you know, if that sort of... Again, this may all end up on the cutting room floor, but I doubt it. I doubt whether all of it will. And I think if those sort of issues can be broadcast on peak time, on something like Channel 4, I think it's completely fair enough. It does sound like a much more intellectual and interesting reality show. But it's all it, in the it's editing. Except for the canary. It's all in the editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I, I mean, know, we'll wait. We'll wait and see. Yeah, but I think now people are in personally, because what you said, they wanted, they've cast you as the sort of serious person who's going to be down on all the fun. And still probably keep it in. Can I just really spoil everyone's fun for this and say that I got chucked out first. <laughs> oh, I was, I was rooting for you. <laughs> so there's somebody else uh, back there? I was just going to say that um, my grandmother used to always say, never air your dirty laundry in public. And within two generations, um, we've gone from the kind of conversation you should have at your you know, holiday party with your family 
um, as you finish up the last bottle of wine to showing it on TV. And to, you know, actually, you know, my, my, my parents, sometimes I catch them watching something like that. And I'm just wondering, we talk about, you know, a renaissance person. You always knew that person growing up who was good at everything and you were a bit jealous. Um, to somebody, you think about a da Vinci versus a Gwyneth Paltrow who's an actress, a singer, a cookbook, um, you know, author. Uh, you know, is her cookbook as good as a Mario Batali cookbook? That's what he does. And I'm just wondering... Anybody, you know, are we going to address narcissism in this postmodern society? And isn't society self-correcting? Aren't kids younger than, than you know, our younger cousins or our, our children going to kind of come around and say, this isn't okay, well, and what's happened so, to us? Well, you're making many different points in one. And, and one thing I would say about the airing of the dirty laundry um, I get that, but I would also say that there are people, in, you know, across America whose only exposure to homosexuality or alcoholism or something that's going on in their own home may be something that they've seen on TV or read in one of these magazines um, or to Farrah Fawcett's cancer struggle. Like, there's a reason why these stories touch people, and sometimes the reason is the basest reason possible. But some, you know, there's, mm-hmm. as an American, I, I, you know, there's something to be said for airing your dirty laundry. Uh, that, you know so that's one thing. And then I also, uh, I think Mark is, you know, well, I think what's the, you made the Gwyneth Paltrow, yeah, like, narcissism point. I bet Mark has... Well, uh, no, I mean, what, what I think is so interesting about airing your dirty laundry is it's become a way for a lot of people to, to make, make money. money. And right. so I think that, you know, when you look at The Real Housewives as a show, as fascinating or boring as it may be, I think a lot of the New York housewives are in on the joke. Oh, they're on TV. They're on this program. They... Countess Luann has, yeah. you know, a book on manners, and she's singing now. And you know, we right. saw what Jill happened to Bethany Frank. Yeah. Jill Zarin, you know, yeah. has her husband's fabric business. But the and so, and so, I think, I think, they are I think increasingly more and more, we're going to see these reality stars who become reality stars because they get it. They know what it can do for them. Right, and they know but, what they need to right. do. But the question that I have is, <clears throat> when do we realize that the joke's on okay. us? Do you know what's interesting? Yeah, if question. I could just interject. I watched something last night which I hadn't expected to watch. I happened on it, and I was so glad that I did. And it sort of it takes it into a different category. I think that Mark is absolutely right. The people that come to this as civilians do it now to build their brand, to get a, a, a shapewear deal. Jill Zarin has a shapewear deal. This one has a fragrance. This one, that one. Last night I watched The O'Neills. I don't know if anybody else saw it on OWN. It was, my husband, who like hates all this stuff, hates media, hated Princess Diana. I don't know how the hell we ever wound up getting married. But uh, he came in, he said, what the hell? And now here's someone who really does not like it. And he, his question to me was, why the hell are, why the hell are they talking about this kind of stuff on television? And I, was, I sort of referenced the documentary, the Farrah Fawcett documentary, and there was that whole article in the Times where the sort of the control was wrestled away from Farrah had wanted to create this definitive documentary about living with cancer. She didn't expect to die, the poor woman. And then there's this whole idea that uh, Alana Stewart and and Ryan O'Neill sort of were the ones that had Redmond coming in at the end in prison shackles and crawling into bed with his mother, which was just stomach churning. But last night, it was very interesting to watch Ryan O'Neill, who was, you know, love story, the biggest male actor, you know, one of the biggest male actors of the 70s, and Tatum O'Neill, 
who, I mean, they're, they've been christened by Oprah. I mean, the, the most compelling shows on Oprah right now, on Oprah's network, are Finding Sarah, which is also fabulous television, I think. Shania Twain, which was very aspirational, feel good. I loved that finale with Lionel Richie coming in. And so, you know, as Oprah's, you know, putting her little seal of approval on it. But with the Ryan and Tatum thing, to your point, you know, watching a family as famous as this with all that they had, and this, this, this poor woman who at 47 years old, all she was, it was heartbreaking. All she wanted was this sort of modicum of acknowledgement and respect from her father and spent the entire episode wondering if this son of a bitch was going to come to her birthday party. I, I just, it was heartbreaking. But the idea that they both come to it for different things. I mean, clearly I think Ryan O'Neill found sort of this is the way that we consider him relevant now. I mean, Farrah Fawcett's documentary and, and this where he's torturing his poor daughter and throwing his grandson out of a car because he obviously hasn't, you know, managed that anger management thing quite yet. Um, but it was interesting to me that they chose to do this, but I think they chose to do it because she really believed that perhaps this was maybe the only way to get her father to sit down and maybe, it seems... That and she, pay attention to That her. she really wanted this attention. And she, here's this woman that has to go on television with this former star, who what you're saying about everybody used to be famous for 15 minutes, and it was very compelling television. But at the same time, you know, they were playing out a scenario that plays out across the country, estranged fathers and daughters, family members, and I think there's probably, because of the Oprah, you know, the sort of Oprah audience, a lot of people that are going to get a lot of catharsis and, and learn some stuff. I think it's all about, oh, sorry, I, just, I just think it's all about dosage. You know, the Greeks had catharsis. I mean, they created it. And Greek tragedies were cathartic, and everybody went and saw a play, and they were enlightened by it and learned a lot from it. And today we consider that the ultimate in literature. But it was in its time the reality TV of, of, of the Greek land, not the Greek lands, um, Greek times. But there was a dosage. You had it for an hour, two hours, whatever, and that was it for life. Maybe you saw it again if it came around again. Maybe you saw the next one. But it was two hours for life, basically each one of those plays. And now we're having, it's 24 hours, seven days a week, people dip in and out when they're awake and conscious, they're checking the Facebook updates, they're checking uh, the, you know, the news updates, the 24-7 online sites for the hundreds of magazines, and you've got Hollywood Life, hollywoodlifewrite.com is another one that's 24-7. So people get so immersed that the dosage becomes, I think, deleterious. I think that's the problem. I think that's yeah, a good some point. some yeah. of this stuff yeah. is great to be talking about. And uh, I'm not saying it all has to be done on, like, serious talk shows, like the old Dick Cavett show or something. No, I think it's great that it's out there. But I think it's just out there to such a degree that it, be, it goes past the point of actually being enlightening. It becomes very deadening and deadening. And then our expectations of what passes for dialogue in society become very, very, very lower and lower and lower. Mm -hmm. So that we actually don't have meaningful dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's what I, I want to put a flag in the ground and say, yeah, I think totally, this should totally stop here. You know? Yeah. I think there's a distinction between illuminating and exploiting. Mm -hmm. You know, I think yeah. of an early season of The Real World where Pedro Zamora um, was, you know, for an entire generation of TV viewers, the first time they'd ever seen someone with AIDS. And the fact that they essentially watched him die on the air and watched six housemates, including someone who was homophobic, deal with him, there's no question to me that that cast light on something. But there's a world of difference between that and putting two opposites together in order to exploit their difference rather than shed light on it. Which, And I think confrontation, for confrontation's sake, is a lot of what we see now in celebrity mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, that's sure. perfectly put, yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I've written biographies of Audrey Hepburn and Jackie Onassis, Elvis Presley, big biographies. And I think what's fascinating is what passes for celebrity. And I find myself 
unbelievably uh, agreeing with Bob Guccione Jr., who I know nothing about. But anyway, um, it just seems in the old days. <laughs> Better if, you know nothing. <laughs> if you wanted, well, I know the last name. But if you wanted to become famous, you had to, you know, repel, you know, lead the Allied invasion on D-Day, or you had to fly across the Atlantic in a plane by yourself, or. You know, you had to damn it, do something to be famous, and now it's like any. And, but my, what a, the point that I want to make was that of all the people you've mentioned on this panel for the past hour, probably the only person who will mean anything in ten years is the uh, you know the royal family. The two, the, they just Kate got married. The yeah, those two of them. And I think as Americans, we care vaguely about the British royal family because we're not underwriting it. You know, we don't pay for those guys. So yeah, they're. You know, they, they get married. We watch them a little bit. Prince Philip is a, you know, knucklehead or whatever. But we do not, you know, when you go to England and you see how those royals live, I, I couldn't, um, I, you know, it's pretty wild. They live very, very high on the hog. So, interesting. Okay, that was my comment. Yeah, um, Alex Graham. Uh, I'm a television producer. Um, as it happens, we make uh, real housewives of uh, New York City for Bravo. Uh, but we also... But we also make Who Do You Think You Are for uh, NBC, which is uh, a different kind of uh, celebrity uh, reality show. Um, and I think the point I want to make is that, I mean, I think the most interesting bit of this discussion has been trying to deconstruct and, and separate out different notions of celebrity, the distinction between celebrity and fame. But part of the problem with the discourse is that when it comes to talk about reality television, reality television is put across as a single homogeneous uh, concept, you know, and the truth is reality television has been around now for more than a decade uh, as in its current form and, and I think that it embraces uh, Real Housewives of New York City, it embraces who do you think you are, it embraces intervention, it embraces Top Chef, it embraces and the truth of the matter is these shows are about as different from one another as uh, um, scripted or uh, as scripted as from non-scripted and incidentally I have to, I have to uh, disabuse you uh, Real Housewives is not uh, a semi-scripted show. It's a completely scripted show. So there's no semi uh, about it, I have to say. Um, I, and, and actually, just um, finally, I mean, Rosie's point, I think the other thing I, I would say, so first of all, there's a kind of, the problem is that we look at reality television as a homogeneous thing. It's not. It's as diverse as television, generally. And the other point, of course, is economics, you know. And, you know, I mean, Mark's point about have we picked, you know, I think is interesting interesting because I think we may have peaked on the networks and part of the problem, of course, the reason why reality television emerged in the first place is because the networks price scripted television out of the marketplace, you know, and they continue to do it. They haven't. It's, they've had 10 years to learn the lesson. They still haven't learned how to make scripted television cheaper. Um, but they now have a problem, which is, of course, what the cable shows, what the cable networks do is reality. So if the networks are going to distinguish themselves from the cable, if they're going to encourage that audience to come back to the networks, they are going to have to find something different from the undifferentiated, uh, undifferentiated stuff. And that may be one of the reasons why network television is getting back into uh, scripted uh, programming. But it's still going to have to figure out how to fund it. Right. Okay. So Julia is playing us off. And thank you to my panelists. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you.